Best Book Pits podcast brings you Michael Francis, author of the book 59 Prime, A Journey of Faith, Challenges, Hope and Triumph. Michael, thank you for being on the podcast. Michael, thanks for having me. Looking forward to sharing my story and um, thank you for being patient. We've had a couple of hiccups, but it's happening. No problem. Now, for my audience um, who don't know you, this is going to be a different one. So Michael's the author of the book, 59 Prime, and it's a, a journey of his story, uh, a very emotional story as well, and uh, quite a lengthy one too. So we're going to jump straight into it. Now, for my audience, obviously, who don't know you, Michael, I want you to go back to your earliest years in your roots, chapter one, my roots. Tell me, who is Michael? Where did you grow up? And how did it all unfold for you in your early years? You know, you know that's a that's a great place to start because that is the foundation. So I was born um, a, a military brat. I was one of four boys uh, that were born into a family of uh, loving parents, um, and I was the third, if you will. But uh, we were close within age, so all of us were were born within a five year span. So we were close. Our parents smothered us with love. Um, we lived in, uh, you know, we were born in the, the late 50s and, and early 60s. There was, a, you know, a lot of um, issues going on with uh, civil rights and things. But um, we were pretty much immune to that um, because of our parents. Um, they always taught us to treat people with respect, see people for who they are and watch people's actions versus their words. So uh, we were blessed to grow up in a loving household. Yeah, awesome. And talk to me about your brothers. Are they Elton, Tony, and, and Brian? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. We are, um, you know, we, we are probably as close as, as close can get. So the uh, one of the things, um, you know, I, I married my wife and she's one of five girls. But when we were uh, dating and, and we would get together, it, after a while, her sisters would say, can you guys really quit hugging and kissing on each other? You know, here we are, grown men, and and I'd say absolutely not. And uh, so we grew up. Um, we had each other's backs. Uh, very different, but the same. I, I tell people that um, we are cut from different parts of the same cloth. Um, we're all grounded. We we always um, we could find each other around each other. An example is uh, within the last two weeks, uh, I have met my brothers at my parents' house. Um, spontaneously three times. So we've been there. One comes, the other one says, hey, I'm on my way and, and that. And, and uh, we really understand and at our stage now to really give back to our parents. They invested heavily in us and allowed us to 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 blossom. And and so we uh, we look for opportunities uh, to get together. Yeah, I want to sort of go even back further to your parents and, and how they sort of grew up in, and you talk in the book and you unpack about segregation and I wanted you to touch on sort of, you know, how hard it was for, you, for your parents to grow up in, in the small town in Texas. Yeah, so the small town is, is um, the, the big metroplex of Giddings, about 5,000 people now. So um, my parents met uh, back in um, 1950, I think 1955, or so. So my, my dad had um, uh, grew up out. Of, uh, they both grew up out in the outskirts of town. Again, it was completely segregated then. So they were in black communities. But what they met through um, my dad's sister um, actually introduced um, my dad to my mom. My dad had joined the military service and was stationed in Arizona. He came back for leave. And my mom happened to be at his mom's house talking to my aunt. And he asked um, my aunt, uh, who, who is this? And, uh, and he said, oh, that, that's little Charlie Jackson's little girl, Charles Zetta. And he said, that's her? 
And um, before he left in 17 days, um, they were engaged and they have now been together now for 65 years uh, of marriage. So um, they grew up and, and, and really um, took us on adventures. Uh, being in the military has its, its, its uh, advantages. One of them is it really supports um, and, and makes you get out and mingle with people uh, because you're going to be plopped into different uh, locations and you have to make friends. And we did that. Uh, one of the things that we experienced, uh, I learned later in life, is we were stationed in, in Idaho and would come home to Texas for our summers. And it was about a 2000 um, mile road trip. And we would just absolutely look forward to it, not only seeing the relatives, but with the drive itself. Our parents made sure we stopped along the way. Um, you know, my mom fried up a bunch of chicken and, and, and it, it tastes better two or three days. So we were on the road and we would sleep in the car. And uh, we, we just thought that was the best. My little brother, uh, Brian, who's in the book, um, he would uh, crawl up into the back and sleep in the window. And, uh, and the other three of us would sleep in the back seat. My mom and dad would be in the front. Well, it was about 15, uh, 20 years ago, I was sharing and talking to dad about how much that meant to us. And uh, that's when he said, son, he said, um, we're really honored and proud that you enjoyed it and recalled it. He says, um, what you didn't know is even despite I was in the military uh, and had my my badge and everything, we weren't allowed to stay in any hotels. So we had no choice, but that was none of your doing. And we were not going to expose you to that. We wanted you to grow up and 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 not be jaded by those kinds of experiences. So that's that's probably one of the most powerful ones. Yeah, I read that in the book and that, that was super touching and it's hard to understand now looking back that that, that actually existed and probably still exists in, in some parts of the world as well. Um, so thank you for sharing that story. It was it was very powerful. And you've got so much love for your siblings and, and your parents too and you talk in the book about sort of you, your unique DNA strands that allowed you to, and I'll read it, sort of intuitively throttle up and down to meet any moment like your mother. And number two, remain calm, stay grounded, be logical and keep things in proper perspective like your father. But talk to me also sort of about some of the most valuable traits uh, about your parents that, that you put in the book. About your mom, you know, I, you know that I, I, um, I started the journey of ancestry uh, about ten or fifteen years ago. My wife had undertook it, and and as I started piecing together some of the the, the puzzles and 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 the different aspects of of, of uh, my DNA, you know, I, I learned things like um, there's a reason why that that me and about eighteen of my cousins. Or have a real strong aptitude towards finance, accounting, uh, numbers. Um, we're all teachers. Uh, we're all either work in the profession. And my grand, my great grandfather uh, was a professor. Um, his grand, his father did numbers. I have that. So there, there is some truth to the DNA and how it flows. Um, I tell people that. You know, I'm I'm really tough to beat in terms of DNA. My mom is a, a very, very loving, caring, grounded, spiritual person. Um, so I have that within me. But I also have the uh, the um, the structure from my dad. Uh, he was a uh, 20, 20 plus years in the military and he worked on on air, airplanes and, and did that. And he, he led uh, teams. And so he was very, very um business-like, if you will, in terms of, you know, understanding how to treat people, how to be a leader. 
uh, he uh, really stressed important to all four of us the importance of integrity, your word, and um, that is the, what defines you even when you're not there. So I have that from him. I have a softer side from my mom, and and uh, I tell people that, that hey, I'm I'm built for success, and I'm blessed, and I know it. But um, I'm I'm pretty tough to beat because I can. Uh, I've used both of those in in the corporate settings that I've been in. So I've worked for four Fortune 500 companies in four different industries. I've worked for the federal government. I work for the local government, and I've just been blessed to uh, have a career where after I I started, I I didn't have to apply for a job. I was selected by people who knew me or pulled to different companies and and moved around because of not only the the what in, in in terms of what I brought to the table, but the how I did it. And I think that's that's probably an, another blessing and a skill that is, is probably not talked about, but I think it's more highly valued. And I talk about it a lot in the book. It's uh, often it, it's not the what, it's the how, and it's uh, not what it's not what happens to you; it's how you respond. Yeah, you've got so much um, so much to unpack in the book, and I like how you structured it, where you started with the roots and the foundations, and what made you who you are, and some of the DNA characteristics and the things that you learned from not only your parents but your, your grandfather, who was a professor as well. I'd like to read a quote from the book as well, if you may. Uh, so I'll go through it. You talk about I'm aging, so that means my parents are aging too, and the world is aging. While I remember this bits and pieces of my family history, there was no cohesive, validated, or formal family manuscript for current or future reference. I should have documented or archived conversations instead of just listening to my grandparents, aunts, and uncles. Unfortunately, as each generation transitions and leaves this existence, so do more intricate pieces of an already complex and scattered puzzle. Great, um, great storytelling. Talk to me about your wife. You write highly of her in the book, your incredible wife. What does she mean to you? She means the world to me. And, and, uh, and uh, I, I will tell you right now, if I get choked up during this, it's, it's, it's uh, because of the love I have for her. And I would not be the person uh, who I am now. And that's not, I'm not just saying that. So um, uh, I met her 38 years ago when we, uh, at, at a college, uh, which is now Texas State University. I arrived a year earlier than her. And um, uh, so my, my brother Elton was there at the time. He was there on a track scholarship. And so he kind of uh, pulled me into the reins and, and it was kind of showing me the campus and things. And he actually met her and introduced her to me at the time as a joke um, because I had in high school in the small town, I had dated another uh, girl who had the same name, Janelle, spelled different, but the same name. And I had, you know since um dissolved that relationship and a year later this janelle comes in so he was doing it as a joke and um week i i looked at her and then just thought she was incredibly beautiful but i was uh, not in the right headspace a small town boy going to college so i was was probably you know a little rambunctious but um we started dating uh, about two years after after we met uh when i realized hey look i'm gonna i need to focus and get out of school and I came back uh, uh, one one night. I was walking around the campus, just getting my thoughts together, and I bumped into her. And that's when we started talking. And I realized, wow, she's she's beautiful inside and out. And she is the uh, you know, she's shined such a bright light on on a lot of things that I were in the dark about uh, about myself 
uh, about life and she gave me a different perspective. So she is an artist and um, she's a, um, she has a fine arts degree from, from the Southwest Texas State University. And uh, we, we quickly became known as the artist and the nerd, you will. And it was a term of reflection that I'm so proud of. Um, when I met her, I tell people that uh, I always thought there were just eight crayons in, 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 in the thing. But now, uh, after meeting her, I know that there's 64, there's fuchsia, there's teal, there's seafoam, all these things. So she opened opened my eyes up to, to not only that, but also even uh, lens on, on people. Uh, I remember telling her a story, and I started by saying, it, it was the... This white guy was doing this, this, that, and it, and, and I went on this thing and talking. It was a, it was a very jovial story, and she listened intently. And then at the end of it, I said, well, "What do you think?" She says, "Why? I don't see where the, the reference to his race was relevant." And I thought, "She's right. Why? Why did it? it, it you know, it added no value. So it just raised my antenna on those kinds of issues and." Uh, I, I carry a lot of things um, that she has said. Uh, I put in the book that um, 95% of the time she's right. And I, I will quickly tell her, but there's, there's, you know, we have this kind of joking thing now where, uh, you know, she'll, she'll smile at me and look at me and she says, of course I'm right. That's why I'm the wife. And so we are, we are, we are one. And uh, we have, endured every single vow, uh, sickness and health, um, uh, forsaking all others, rich or poor. The only one that we have left is, is now to death this part. And, and we, we are, uh, we are one as we speak. I'm, I'm here at her or my father-in-law's house, my 90 year father-in-law. So in the book, I also talk about the passing of my mother-in-law, who was a, an elegant woman. Uh, and I've known them for now over 40, 40 years and uh, she passed and it's it's been a ripple effect through her her family which is me and so I spend a lot of my time with her and her father um, because I loved him I love them both and I love her and I, and I love her family and uh, I've always said that actions speak louder than words and so what I'm doing now is that but she's an incredible artist She's had two solo shows. Uh, if you're ever in Austin, Texas, and you ever go to the W Hotel, which is essentially uh, located and prominent, if you check in behind the, behind the check-in desk, there's a picture that, that they bought, and it's it's uh, it's called Marla, and it's it's Janelle's work. Um, the owners of the W bought it, and they also bought another one that resides in their house, and uh, her work is now displayed across the U.S. in about 70, I believe 73 different homes. So she's modest and and it's probably going to be upset that I'm talking about her, but I love her and uh, she won't pat herself and, and, and I do and uh, I would be nothing without her. Yeah, thanks for sharing and, and I like how you shared so much in the book as well, but the, the love for you too is, uh, it's next level. Uh, it's it's really nice and, and humbling to read a, a love story between a you know, husband and wife and, and, and the, the amount of love for you, for her grows from you every day, it seems like as well. Um, I want to sort of circle back to something you said about with, which was race and you sort of unpack and talk a bit about it in the book as well. And I'll just read a paragraph as well because this book is super powerful. So those listening, we're going to get into some of the travels and troubles and hiccups that Michael goes along the way because this book is a memoir of his life. And uh, before we jump into race, what does 59 Prime actually mean, Michael? So 59 Prime and, and 
um, really stands for where I was uh, when I started this journey. So a year ago, about this time, um, uh, I was I turned 59 on January 22nd. Um, I had started um, uh, the new year off saying, hey, I'm going to get myself ready for 60. And so I, I, went, I did a body cleanse. I started working out more and I'd actually dropped about uh, about 16 or 18 pounds during January before the storm hit in February. So I was doing it 59 thinking I was going to be in my prime. And so that kind of stuck with me. And in February, when I started going through the medical things and thoughts started coming to me, uh, it started first with just stickies. I would I, I would just be inundated with, with different quotes and things coming to me. And I was jotting them down. And I started that process on February 1st. And, and, and then I did a, a hard stop on, on March 31st because I, I wanted to start with the roots. And so I just said, hey, look, I got all these thoughts and I've jotted them down. And it just so happened that that period of time was also 59 days. And then the, the kind of play on words, if you will, 59 being a prime number. And so within uh, three weeks of, uh, you know, in February, I had the title for a book that I never knew I was going to be writing or never thought was possible. And um, it just led from there. I'm, I'm by back, my background is uh, HR and finance, and I've had a pretty good career. One of the things I'm noted for is my ability to do, you know, spreadsheets, Excel, bring things together, data. So the, the possibility of me writing a book, maybe not so much. Maybe doing a spreadsheet, that, that's in my strike zone. So this came to me as a, I realized quickly as a gift. And so I just was for once smart enough not to challenge it, dissect it, analyze it. I just wrote it down. I started writing stickies. Uh, they would come to me. I'd go down and make a sandwich and it would be 30 minutes later. And Janelle would come down. Where are you? And she'd come down and there would be post-it notes all over the place. And I, I told her, I don't know what's happening, but I, I got to get it out. And I'm so glad I did. Yeah, I can really see that, that the book actually came out for you and it was just a, a growth and something that you birthed. So congratulations on the birth of this book. But yeah, let's circle back to race because you talk about it in the book and I want to go through the, the chapters. So I'll just read a, a short paragraph from the book if you don't mind. So you write, so under the watchful eye of our slave owners, we developed our way to communicate, celebrate and commiserate African-American history, gospel music, the divine providence where critical pillars that supported our plight. Gospel music evolved into one of the primary mediums for us as a people to express our sorrow, hope, resiliency, pain, suffering, and faith. Singing was one of the few freedoms my ancestors had permission to do without fear, intimidation, or retribution. Talk to me about gospel music. So it's played a, like I said, a pivotal role. Um, For me growing up, um, it was Sunday and and being in the church was almost the way that we re-energized ourselves. We had our own space and we had the right to do whatever we wanted within the confines of that. And it was a way for us to come together, reunite, reinvigorate and revalidate our bonds um, to go face the weekend. Uh, It was um, the one the one place where 
the race or the prejudice did not uh, could not come in and infect. And, and, and to this day, it, it still remains so. And and so a lot of the spirituals that have evolved over the centuries, uh, they came out of out of pain and suffering that was much deeper and, and uh, much uh, more profound than than what we're experiencing now, which is which is still quite a bit. But um, but. The issues, the the challenges that we I had with uh, researching my DNA are are real for all African Americans. Um, we cannot go back um, uh, into the eighteen eighty. If you can get into eighteen thirty, then you're doing great because uh, we we were property then, and so a lot of that was uh, we were followed along with cattle, and so we lost a lot of our identity. Uh, we lost a lot of our ability to go back and trace things, and that carried over that um, going through that time, the sadness, the harshness, it taught us as a people, uh, unfortunately, um, to be keep things to ourselves, to deal with things, to internalize things, but not to talk about them. And that is stifled. Uh, that also served, unfortunately, to stifle the history, the oral history, because some of the things were so atrocious that they were just too, ta- too tough for my ancestors to talk about. And so um, the oral history kind of uh, either was just kind of shut down or, or didn't exist. So um, all of that flows through and and comes through in in the gospel music. And if you see in, in um, the chapter, My Thoughts, there is um, a musing or a writing that I did about the importance that, you know, and I actually list um, different songs by different people for different things, whether it be death, whether it be celebration, whether it be hope. And those are, are meaningful and, and real things that, that helped us and still help us today uh, to do, um, to, to, to evolve and to, to stay, stay the course. And uh, all of those are aspirational and unfortunately still remain aspirational. And, and we have not achieved those. So we still hang on to those. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And yeah, I know you unpack it um, going over the years um, and, and decades of the story as well. And one of the things that really stuck out at me as well, you wrote in the book, uh, there's a strong correlation between denial and reoccurrence. History ignored is history repeated. Take a look around if you need proof. Um, talk to me about the story of getting pulled over. That was a real emotional one for me when I read, if you like to share that story of just being pulled over randomly, driving your Lexus, as you said, you're a, you know, a management HR consultant and work for four, Fortune 500 companies and your resume is quite long and comprehensive as well. But talk to me about that day, just being pulled over randomly. Yeah. And, and, um, that one, you know, that, that was the, I believe that was the fourth time that I've, I'd been pulled over, uh, for no reason, uh, found afterwards which and and um that was pretty recent i think that was in 2015 or so i had just moved back to to texas uh and um had spent a lot of time i took some time off and we bought a house in austin and my parents lived about an hour away and so i would go down there occasionally to gettings um and it's it's um you know leaving the urban life and going on the rural roads you, you just encounter it and and i i say in the in the book, it's it's really not about race or um, uh, police officers in general. It's just the luck of the draw who you get, and, and it really means that. So I got pulled over uh, as I was driving uh, to my my parents' house, and 
And I pulled over and, and I just go through and I, in the book, I articulate the kind of protocols that I go through in the conversation. But in, in a nutshell, you know, I was asked, you know, the, the typical, you know, let me see your driver's license registrations and all that. And, and I did, but uh, there's always an, a subtle kind of checklist of things that we do. It, you know, first thing I did was put my hands on my steering wheel when he came and I said, Hey, they're in the glove compartment. Can I, can I have, get it? And, and I get it, um, given permission to get it. Um, and he asked me the series of questions among them, you know, do you have any drugs? And which I, no, sir. Um, do you take any drugs? No, sir. Do you have any firearms? No, sir. Um, the one that got me was, it was almost as if he was going through a checklist, but the one that where I just really just froze is when he asked me, are you a professional athlete? And that is just one that is, I don't know if that's normal protocol, but to me, that was just kind of saying, look, you're, you're not a drug dealer. You don't take drugs. You're driving this nice car. You, so you must be a professional athlete. And I, uh, you know, it, it's, it was just uh, humiliating. And in the book, I write about how I was just sitting there with my hands on the wheel. And he, he leaves and steps back and runs some more information. He comes back and he taps my window with, with my information. And he said, here you go. And, um, and he just uh, still looking at me, very demeaning. And he looked at me. He takes one more look over the passenger's seat. He looks down the glove side glove compartment. He kind of steps back a little bit. He looks one more glaringly in the back seat, takes one more look. And then it, it's almost insult and the injury, he says, oh, you're good to go. You be safe out here. You be safe out here because a lot of people are out here. And I'm just thinking in my mind, what is going on? What is going on? This is not normal. And unfortunately, um, I have a pretty good demeanor. And, and I kept thinking, be quiet. Be still. People, this could go, this could turn sideways quickly. And um, it's just unfortunate that those kinds of situations exist there. There's multitudes of them, but that's one of them in the book. There's, there's more. Um, I wrote one about called departure ritual that also talks about how I leave my mom and dad's and the process that my, my mom go through where she sits at the, the doorway and waits. I, I get in the car, I, I look over and mouth, I love you. I can see her saying, Jesus, cover him and keep him. And, um, we've been doing that ever, ever since I was, uh, 19. So, so more than 40 years we've been doing that. Uh, and I didn't realize it because it's just something that I have to do to, to stay alive and for us to have that moment of solitude and trust between a mother and son. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. And then there was a, a real touching story and I know you will elaborate a little bit more in the book from it, but yeah, that's, it's hard, but when you said professional athlete, it did take me back to your um, your high school university days in Texas with the 400 meters. So if you want to unpack that there, talk to me about uh, your university days and how you sort of unfolded and turned your MBA into finance, accounting, human resources and Fortune 500 companies. Talk to me about your professional life through there, Michael. Wow, wow that, that's great. Takes me back to, um, you know, many years and, and, and many pounds ago. Um, but but uh, yeah, I, I grew up in uh, uh, the Francis boys uh, in Giddings were were forced to be reckoned with um, from a track standpoint. So all of us went to state. Um, all of us have meddled in state. Um, my oldest brother, Tweety, who uh, Elton Francis, we called him Tweety. 
because uh, he looked like a Tweety Bird. Um, he was he was the most natural, talented of, of all of us. And uh, he was the first. He was oldest. And um, he won state in, in the 200 meters back in 1977. And he went on to have a college career, collegiate career. Um, and he was a world class athlete. He actually qualified for the Olympic trials in 1980. And that was the year that we boycotted it. Um, so he didn't have a chance to participate, but um, he went on at Texas State. He held the 100 meters and 200 meter record for almost 40 years. It was just broken recently. So he was uh, way ahead of his time. But but us together, we were uh, we were all pretty, pretty fast and competitive. So I I, um, I finished um, high school at the state track meet. I, I got second in 200 meters and. And I got um, I, I ran a, a leg on the 400 meter relay, which got second. Um, we got beat in both events by a team with um, brothers who went on to be world class athletes. They were called the Ketchums. But um, I used that moment to propel myself. I, I got a scholarship to go to, to uh, Texas State University. And so um, despite my uh, counselor's recommendation when I told him I wanted to, to major in business and uh, I had a plan and and I wanted to be a finance major and when I was in high school and telling him you know just, just want to make sure that um, I'm, I'm checking all the boxes uh, he he almost he tried to counsel me out of it a little bit so and say hey why don't you just take a trade school there's a there's a good one you know that might be a, a bit of a stretch for you and um, fortunately my parents had instilled in me, drive, motivation, and the courage to, um, you know, set goals and, and, and focus on them. I didn't listen to his advice. I got the scholarship. I went on to go to um, Texas State. Uh, I ran uh, on a scholarship for three years. Uh, I was um, uh, on the Texas State honor list because I, I medaled at the conference meet. Um, but more importantly uh, was the discipline that I um uh, learned from my dad about my goals. And so I am, um, I'm sorry, that's a, so I was able to, to focus and, and I got my, my finance degree and I was, um, I graduated in about five years and, uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say I, I stuck around longer because I wanted to, to graduate with Janelle. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> so, so, but, um, we actually graduated together in, in the, in the summer of, of 1986. And so she graduated with an art degree. I graduated with my finance degree and then we got married in that December. Um, I, I immediately got a job uh, working at the Sonic Drive-In first, and then uh, uh, three months later, I wound up working for the federal government. So I worked at the Internal Revenue Service. So I got my first job there. That uh, during that time, I went back to Texas State and was driving uh, back and forth. Uh, it was forty miles each way, and I was working on my MBA, and I finished that in in nineteen ninety one. And from there, I met somebody when I was taking the MBA class. He introduced me to um, the, the, um, Dell, Dell Technologies, and that's where everything shifted in my life. I, I started working there, and my career has bounced back and forth between human re finance first and then human resources. And, and today, I use both of those interchangeably in my consulting agency, which I um, started about two years ago, and it's called Beam Executive Advisors. And I chose the name Beam not only be because of what 
Webster defines it as a ray of light, support, um, uh, to, to smile broadly. But more importantly, I chose it because of the letters. Those, first le those four letters have initials of me and my brother's name, Brian, Elton, Anthony, and Michael. And so that is Beam Executive Advisors. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Yeah, amazing story. And I, one of the things I really got from the book was what your parents said about never let someone else set the height of your bar. So, you know, maybe you get counselors, you get friends or family telling you what you should do. Only you know your potential deep within your heart. So never letting someone else set the height of your bar. That was a, a great quote that I got as well. Um, yeah, before we jump into the next chapter, Talk to me about the traumatic loss of your, your brother in, in 2006 and how that sort of unfolded. It, it was um, it was a life changing event that confirmed what we already knew about our bond. And um, so in in um, in 2005, uh, Elton, uh, henceforth to be to be referred to as Tweety, which is um we still, uh, we, you know, that's how he is remembered today. Um, you know, he, he became ill with um, three things that, um, that quickly kind of came to, to a head. So he had pancreatitis, uh, he had Crohn's, and then he had a, to get a defibrillator. So all of those things kind of happened pretty quickly. Uh, just a little bit about him. Um, the legacy he left was he was, uh, I'm, I'm the quietest one of all of them. He probably was the most outgoing there. Every, all of them are, <laughs> uh, you know, are, are a little bit more loquacious than I am. But, um, while he was in, in, in college and, and afterwards, he would, uh, he was just a magnet for people. Uh, there are people who, uh, he brought into our lives that I haven't seen in 15, 20 years but they still know it's stopped by my mom and dad's house. And so they stopped by there because of, uh, Tweety brought him there. And also the fact that uh, he is actually, his, his grave is, is uh, less, than, uh, less than a mile from my mom and dad's house. So, so I think he did that strategically and placed in. So he's there. He made sure they're going to come see him and then see my mom and dad. Um, but it was a traumatic event. But we were there with him as brothers, uh, with him when he passed and, and there to support him. But... We have tried to, um, you never get over something like that, um, but you always try to, to use some of the things that you learn going through it. And we are uh, a three-legged stool now that, that really feels like we have an invisible fourth leg, but we, we are even closer now. We were really close then and before. Uh, um, we will are quick to tell each other we love you in front of doesn't matter who, and we are very comfortable and confident in that. And... Uh, we um we didn't realize that all the things that my parents instilled in us how how they would come to fruition. We didn't know we were a little different in terms of that and the relationship until we started bringing friends over and and we realized that you know not everybody has um, both parents. Not everybody has parents that were loving, supporting, and giving and all that. And my parents not only did that for us, but they embraced everybody we brought in, and so. There are hundreds of people who who call my m mama Charles, uh, you know, they, they, my dad, they look for them. Uh, uh, several men who are grown men who I grew up with that, that are they look to them for guidance to this day. So um, his loss uh, 
uh, although traumatic, it's really reinforced what it is and just reminds us that no one is immune. And um, if, if things haven't happened, um, as my Aunt Babe would say, well, just keep on living because um, time is um, waits for no one. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And it just goes to show that uh, the upbringing that your parents and the, and the qualities and values they instilled with you the brothers really encapsulated in times of headwinds. And we're going to get into your headwinds as well, because that's what the book is about too. So, but just to touch on a lighter note, uh, chapter three, talk about your travels. Talk to me about your travels, traveling the world, Mount Everest, Kilimanjaro. Talk to me about your uh, travels. Uh, you know, in, 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 even in there, there's, there's some humility. Uh, I was, uh, because I was an athlete, you know, I am, um, as I stumbled, uh, Janelle, Janelle and I, uh, gosh, in the, in the early early nineties, we went to visit her her sister. Now, t- just for reference, Janelle is also an uh, Air Force brat, not brat, I guess you will, but but her father was an Air Force, and and she was born in Anchorage, Alaska, and so uh, her sisters wound up getting stationed there because their husband or her husband got stationed there. And so we took that opportunity to go up and, and visit them because we wanted to go see, I, I wanted to go see Alaska. I heard how majestic it was. So I was excited to go. And, and um, we flew into Anchorage and, and, and uh, they were stationed there in Fairbanks, which is uh, you know a bit further up North. And so one of the things we did was I said, let's take the train. We'll stop into Denali park and we'll do some hiking there and, and then we'll go on there. Well, that was the first time that we'd ever done anything like hiking. So we stopped in there at Denali Park and we just got up one morning and said, hey, let's go do some hiking. And we wound up just falling in love with it. And I mean, it absolutely the the challenge of, of the, some of the, the hikes, the terrain and ultimately the, the views that you, you would get. The vistas were just incredible, and we realized not everybody gets a chance to see these. And so that launched us into wanting to do more of that. So we we have subsequently, um, I mean, all all the places within the United States, our, our favorite, though, is, is probably the Sedona area or the Four Corners, which is, you know, just a, a lot of red rocks, beautiful vistas, um, those kinds of things. But um, internationally, we have, um, you know, Mexico City, we have done... Uh, Cusco, we have done Lima, we have done Santiago. So we've we've gone down uh, South America. We've gone over to Easter Island, um, done Machu Picchu. Um, we've traveled to Amsterdam. We've traveled uh, to Africa and, and uh, Tanzania, and have done uh, Kilimanjaro. Uh, we have traveled um, to Tokyo. Uh, we've traveled. Um, uh, out to Kathmandu, so we did Kathmandu, and we wound up doing the the base ever uh, base Everest trek. So we we didn't do the trek per se, but we did the trail and um, had uh, got up to to base camp, which is very humbling at uh, nineteen thousand feet. And so we've done some things that have really helped us grow uh, spiritually as well, and and also it just kind of helps reset. Uh, it reminds you of what you have. Um, a lot of those places, that, there was no running water. Um, there was no air conditioning. There, there, there was no bed. There, there, a lot of the things that um, we take for granted didn't exist there. And the people at every stop, who the porters or the people we met, uh, one, they were so proud of what they had. And two, they, were, they would share it with us that you had no choice to reflect and, and think about kind of 
you know, some of the things we take for granted and, and um, uh, how we might be viewed sometimes as condescending in some of the things that we do based on what we have. And so we learned so much from that, not only the um, uh, what we were afforded to in terms of the views and, and some of the, the lessons we learned about ourselves. There's a, you have a lot of time to think when you're hiking on a mountain at, uh, you know, you're three miles up and uh, your body is saying, what are you doing? And, um, you know, I, I actually had two instances on Kilimanjaro and on the Everest hike where I was probably the fittest, but that doesn't, altitude doesn't uh, care if you're the fittest. That's also, um, can come back to haunt you. So I wound up not summiting on one of those and it was probably the best piece of humble pie that I had when I didn't make it. And I was probably the fittest and to let Janelle go and summit. And I had to turn around and I had to wait 24 hours for her to go and summit and come back. And I had a lot of time to reflect on, um, what it means and what's important. So there's, there was just some great, great lessons. And, and the, like I said, the porters, the people we met, all of those things uh, from the help shape my life and the, the travels, the headwinds, the people I met in college, all of those things. And that's why I, uh, I included them in the book, because they all help calibrate me and make me the person that I am. Yeah. But have you been to Australia? You know, it's on my list. That That's that's one of the um, we have not been to Antarctica and we have not been to Australia. But okay, we've been cool. everywhere, and so I am. I'm anxious to come down there because I there's, I'm, I'm a foodie as well, and you know I have my Facebook page and love food, and I've I've heard and seen that you guys have a are bountiful with with with, <laughs> with your cuisine. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we are the food capital, but we are not Texan barbecue. Talk about that. Oh. Talk about that uh, barbecue, what food means to you. You've got a Facebook page, people listening saying, what? What is it about? How did it start? And then we can jump into your journey with um, some of your hospitalizations and going through that. So food and barbecue, what's it mean to you? Food and barbecue. So, you know what? And, 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 and even that, the, the, the food goes back to my roots. That's um, one of the things that we did as a family is when we got together, it, it, it usually was food that, that kind of was is helping bringing us together, you know, the actual love that went into preparing it, the sharing it, um, the eating it. And, and we did so and still do so in very large quantities. And so, um, you know, barbecuing was something my dad did from as long as I can remember. And um, in, uh, in 1995, uh, I was in my, my 30s getting there and I just bought a house. And I had been spending a lot of time with my dad watching what he was doing at on his, on his pits. And he bequeathed me a, a pit and um, it's a barrel pit. And uh, I christened it Martha and it's at my house now. And so Martha has been with me ever since 1995 and I use it. And I, I now have two other pits. So I have another one that's a real offset smoker that's called Fletcher. And and then I have the the egg. Um, I one it's a it's Komodo Joe that I call R two D two, and so I have them named. And uh, I cook and and uh, I love to cook. It's therapeutic for me. I, I cook, um, you know, I cook for no reason. I <laughs> two weeks ago I was alone, home alone, and I had the smoker filled with food, and people were saying, "What are you doing?" I said, "I just want to cook it," and and I cook it, and and uh, my neighbors now they now look forward to me cooking because they bring stuff over 
And this has been not only in Austin, but when I was in California and before I left, I've always been known as just loving to cook. And so this is how an evening might go. So um, I'll start firing up Martha, which is and the, uh, the smoke will start going down. I'll get a text from a neighbor about uh, maybe a block or two away. And he says, hey, I smell Martha. What do you got on her? And I said, well, I got a couple of things. Can I bring some stuff? And yeah, they will bring it. I will season it. I will cook it. I will wrap it up and and then uh, I'll put it back in some Tupperware. And then, honest to God, I'll I'll text them and I'll say your order is ready on fence post two, and they will come by and get it. And I I just I enjoy the smile on their face and I enjoy the the cooking. It's therapeutic for me. But uh, I have um, I have so much fun cooking. I tell people, you know, I use a little little mop to moisten my meat sometime on there and. And I'll jokingly tell people, I'll say, and they'll say, what's the flavor so good? I said, it's the mop I use. It's one of the things. And I said, look, I said, you can you can mop a bad child and it'll taste good. (laughs) So so I really love food and and, uh, not only for for what it does, it always brings people together. There's not been a time that I have barbecued where I have not met somebody different, new who just stopped by. They smelled it. I've had somebody come up the street. And he stopped and, and uh, he told me, he says, I was down at the end of the street and and and, uh, and Martin told me, I I told him I smell this. And he said, it's Michael He's up at the corner. And so he came by. So it opens doors. And, and um, I, I love people. I love to talk because I learned something from everybody. And so a lot of people have come through the fence just to, to look. And uh, if you ever want to look at the food or whatever, I, I called it my food porn, um, but I haven't. I do have that website. It's called Epicurious the One, and it's the T H E and the number one. And I, I posted on there yesterday. So I cook not only barbecue, but I, I love to cook everything. So I bake. I, I don't do a whole lot of baking, but I I, I grill. I, I I just do a lot of food, and there's videos on there, and, and I love it. And, and it's it's therapeutic, but it also brings people together. I'll put a link in the description as well. Me and my wife are foodies, and one of my bucket lists would be to definitely come to your place in Austin, Texas, and have some some real uh, real Texan barbecue. Uh, we do watch the TV shows as well, but yeah, when you're from Australia, America is the bucket list, especially barbecue, and I'm sure <laughs> Americans, Australia is the bucket list too, so we're connected in that way. Um, anybody, anybody that comes here, that comes to Austin, that, that I, I will, that's an opening invitation. I, I will know. I actually, um, you know, when I was in California before coming back to Texas in 2014, I was gone for 12 years. And one of the things I missed was barbecue. And so when I came back and was able to take off a year, I went on this barbecue tour and I created a, a, a list. I have a spreadsheet that has 30, 34 different barbecue places on it that I've been to multiple, some of them multiple times. And I have them ranked and, uh, you know, uh, you know, these are the five star. These are who and I have, you know, by not only the the total experience, but by different whether it's brisket, whether it's the chicken or whatever. And I have that. And there's still 21 more places that are on that list that are in the queue. I haven't been to. It's, so it's I, your barbecue bucket list. That's it. <laughs> awesome. Now we can we can we can talk about food for forever, but I'll, I do want to jump into what the book's about and uh, jump to chapter five, which is uh, your journey back in two thousand two. You you know worked for Dell Technologies, but yeah, what happened? Uh, fast forward to the spring of two thousand eight with your first hospitalization. Can you unpack that a little bit? Absolutely, and it's it's it, it is a genesis, and and I am. Um 
I never thought I'd be here, and, and this this yes, this could get emotional, but it's it's real, and it's uh, a lot of it is how things. Just because you don't know something doesn't mean it isn't already planned and, and it's going to happen. So I I accepted a job at Amgen in 2002. I was working at Dell and I was approached by the job with the biotech Amgen. It was a great opportunity because of the company. And so we left, Janelle and I, she left her family and I left mine and we moved out there not knowing that um, that move would save my life. Uh, we moved in 2002 and in 2006, I started having some medical issues with my vision and with dexterity, and um, I actually collapsed uh, at work, uh, coming out of the elevator after after working uh, working out the at the um, the company gym, and I staggered uh, right straight down the hallway to my my office, and I couldn't remember Janelle's phone number. I was disoriented, and I I was able to hit the uh, the redial button for my boss, who was in the, in the adjacent building. One of the blessings about Something like that happening and, and being uh, employed at a uh, at an incredible company, healthcare company, is that doctors came out everywhere, and uh, uh, I was rushed to the hospital. They were performing tests, and uh, they were they were saying that there's some pressure. Something was causing some pressure in, in uh, on my eye. Uh, I went to the ophthalmologist, and then they diagnosed. He said, "Look, uh, I don't know what's going on, but there's some pressure. I want you to go to UCLA." Ronald Reagan uh, Center in, in LA and I knew that something was up when he said oh and you're going to be seeing the chief neurosurgeon and that's when I said okay this might not be you know something that um, it, this could be something serious and so when we got there um, they ran some tests and uh, I was starting to be even more and more light sensitive and disoriented and I went in on a Friday to see them and he said hey uh, we just ran some more tests, and something's going on in your head. There could be an infection that's putting pressure on your eye. Uh, this was a Friday, and they said, Monday, we need to do a craniotomy, which is basically cutting open your head. And and uh, I was like, oh, okay, this is serious. And over the weekend, why I was uh, awake before I came back, things got really bad. And uh, by the time I got back there, I had double vision, and... Fortunately, the timing that they had recommended was, was right on because otherwise um, they said I, it, the pressure probably could have really just blinded me. So they did the craniotomy on me and it, it took about two and a half, three months for them to get the biopsy and diagnose what it was. But during that time, I actually lost about 25 pounds uh, as my body was starting to eat itself and they didn't know what it was. Uh, they ruled out sarcoidosis, uh, they ruled out cancer, tumors, and a bunch of things. And um, they finally found out what it was, and, and we drove back into UCLA for them to give me the diagnosis. And uh, the, that uh, chief um, neuro, uh, neurosurgeon came out, and he said, you have something really, really rare. And, and I said, oh, yeah. And uh, he said, no, it's, um, it's called idiopathic hypertrophic cranial pachymeningitis. And he says, we have four cases here and we have an eight that we've ever seen and I was like my mom said I was special but I really didn't want to be this special <laughs> and so and uh, I just kind of kind of okay you know everybody's got something even then I had the attitude throughout was just I was always optimistic always thinking okay I've always told people it's not what happens to you how you respond 
And I've also, also told people to, to, to wait to worry. And, and so I had to really kind of internalize a lot of the, the feedback and, and lectures and, and things that I had said. Um, so they began a rigorous process of uh, treatment, which started with chemotherapy. Um, and it migrated to what I am now on, which is uh, every six weeks I get a, a Remicade infusion. So it's, um, you know, I'm better now and it, it's gotten to be a routine. And, and uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's a humbling thing when you go from feeling like you're Superman and, and to, well, wow, wait a minute, there's, 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 uh, this kryptonite is real. And so I, um, I've been dealing with that, but, uh, it's been a, probably the best blessing I've had because I've gotten to the point where I recovered and I, I forget that I have to have an infusion, but when they call me to remind me, it's, it reminds me of how quickly things can change. And so I take the opportunities every time I go into having my infusion, which is about a three hour treatment. Um, I always sit next to somebody or I always, I always approach it like I do life pretty, very optimistically and jovial. And I, and I try to find um, somebody and, or have a conversation. Maybe I can save something that will help somebody else and, and will uplift them. And, and so it's been a, been a blessing in disguise and uh, everybody's got something and, uh, that's my something. And so um, I have dealt with that throughout. And uh, that that happened um, in, in uh, 2008 when I went started that process. And then in 2019, I was hospitalized again back here in Austin uh, when I had a bout of the pneumonia and bronchitis and had a lot of time again alone in the hospital. And uh, one of the things I started reflecting on is what do you want to do with your life? Do you really want to keep working like this? What, what's really important? And um, I came out of that and, uh, after recovering from medical leave and going back to work, uh, two months after I returned, I, I just stepped away from corporate and said, Hey, look, I want to, I want to do things my way. And, and, uh, I want to work with people I want to work with. I want to work with industries that I want to work with. And so I, I started my looking at management consulting and joined a, a firm there. Uh, fast forward to 2021 um, I had started my business in 2020, the fall of 2020, and in January 2021, my insurance changed, and the new provider had never heard of my medical condition, and so there was some back and forth between them and um, the uh, a medical advisors about, you know, what is it? Why is it cost nine thousand dollars? And so instead of getting it six weeks. Uh, six weeks turned into seven weeks, turned into eight weeks, turned into nine weeks. And just about a year ago today, right now, is when I was starting to lose sight again in my left eye because I was four weeks past getting my, my treatment. So we were we were actually one week away from the Texas snowstorm that happened last year where I went almost completely blind and was home alone and started um, that whole sequence uh, started 59 prime. I didn't know what was waiting for me, but we were getting to right, getting ready or, or spiritually something was getting me ready for 59 prime. So what happened with Snowford 2021? Uh, you talk about in the book, there was a massive ice storm, but what happened and yeah, how did that unfold from, from there? And I know, thank you for sharing the, the previous stuff as well. And we can touch, go back on that, but talk to me about the Texas ice storm. 
Well, and uh, and this is actually yeah, almost a year ago today. It's um, it, it happened on February twelfth of last year is when it started coming in, and this time last year, um, it, the temperatures were starting to drop, and Janelle left Austin to come down to where I am at now with her parents to make sure they would be ready for it. And she knew that I was already starting to have go through withdrawals and losing some sight in my eye, uh, my left eye, because of the I didn't get the Remicade treatment. But it was scheduled for the 12th, my, my infusion. And so I said, hey, look, I'm getting ready to get it. I'm just going to stay here and get it, and it'll be okay. Neither of us knew the extent of, of – um, of the snowstorm that, that Texas would face. And um, that morning on Friday, uh, the 12th, uh, as I was getting ready to, to, to go in for my treatment, the weather had gotten bad. But, um, and, and, and then the predictions were starting to come in that this, cause this was going to be really, really bad. But I got a message that morning saying my infusion was canceled because of the weather. So that was week five. So instead of getting something... Every six week, I was now on the eleventh week, and my eye—I was probably down to about thirty percent vision in my left eye. Um, and and then uh, that night, uh, home alone, is when the power went out, and and I was there, and then the temperatures dropped inside. And I'd spend the next that whole weekend in the house, um, just trying to keep warm. Temperatures um, were below 40 degrees Fahrenheit inside the house. I was, um, you know, the good thing was I had I had my uh, my survival stuff from the trekking. So I mean, I had on my North Face, I had on gloves, I had on everything, uh, but my eye was really starting to to deteriorate. And I had been in constant contact with my rheumatologist who were treating me, and and um, he had prescribed and, and had that Friday once it was canceled. Um, he had started me on a 60 milligrams of prednisone, which to tr hopefully try to stop and mitigate it. It, it, it didn't work. And I realized, Michael, the, um, the, that Saturday night uh, when I was trying to open a can of, of chili um, to, to, to cook on the gas stove, and I got it open, but it took me six tries to get the spoon in the can that this was really bad and I couldn't see. And so I, I called the doctor again and he said, look, we're, we're going to we're going to go ahead and get you to the hospital. And uh, if you can just hang on until Monday. And sure enough, I, I made it. Um, and um, then the challenge was getting there because the two two feet of snow had built up. And and uh, luckily, my neighbor across the street had a four wheel Jeep and he, he drove me to the emergency room to start the exact same procedure that I had at UCLA 13 years ago, with their, which started with um, an IV infusion of prednisone, 3,000 milligrams over three days. So your, your body normally makes about five milligrams naturally of prednisone just to kind of help with water absorption. And so they were giving me 1,000 of that for three days to, to try to stop it. But that first, when he dropped me off, I spent the first... Um, 10 hours in the emergency room there waiting because um, the snowstorm was wreaking havoc across Texas. The power was out everywhere, uh, massive amounts. The temperature was, uh, you know, at zero. Um, and, and people were having accidents, breaking their legs, cars and things like that. So um, there was a lot of people ahead of me and in line. And I actually took um, two business calls 
in the lobby and they didn't, the people on the call didn't even, not even know it. I was uh, just taking it thinking, okay, I know what it is and I know it and just got to be patient. And, um, they finally got me in and did another MRI and yes, it was, uh, had reactivated, um, the sleeping giant that was, um, um, the, um, the pac, pac meningitis had, had started to have some activity. Uh, so, um, I, I, they wheeled me in for the MRI. I was talking to the attendant and um, just about the procedures. And, I, you know, I'd been had so many before. I was saying, you're going to use contrast. And things evolved. And we wound up talking about food. And um, we had a great conversation. And that night in the hospital, first night in the hospital, it was so crowded that uh, I spent the first night in a gurney in the hall with an IV. And I remember before I going to sleep, you know, I, I just uh, called Janelle and said, hey, I'm OK. I did. I said, I'm, I'm in the hospital. So I said, we do have heat in there. But then I checked my phone and I looked and I saw that that gentleman had actually um, joined my Facebook page just because of that conversation. Uh, the next night I, they got me a room and I called Janelle and said, hey, honey, I'm fine. I said, I'm, I'm looking out on the fifth floor. And it's snowy. I said, but and uh, I'm fine. Nurse comes in and and she says, Mr. Francis. And I said, yeah. And she says, they said you're so bubbly and everything. I just had to meet you. I said, well, you know, I'm blessed. I'm here. I'm able to get medical treatment. She says, well, I got some bad news for you. And I just want to, we're going to see. And I said, well, what do you got? And she says, well, the snow and, and the temperatures have frozen our septic systems. We're going to need you to use the bathroom in a wastebasket. And I said, hey, I've been trained for this on Kilimanjaro. I said, Machu Picchu and all that. I, yeah, so I'm, I'm trained for this. What else you got? And she, she started laughing and said, <laughs> I can't believe it. I said, hey, you know what? <laughs> you got to play the annual deal. Everybody else is. So, uh, but she, uh, she did that. So, uh, yeah. So I, that started the whole, uh, what would wind up uh, being uh, resulting in uh, an eight month uh, ordeal uh, during which I, I really started writing 59 Prime and, and um, something was with with me making me do this. I the book is not of me, um, and something I could have created on my own. So I, I know that there was some divine intervention, something prompted me, and I, and I didn't fight it. I just kind of went with it. I unplugged from social media, and I gave myself the time to have the clarity to to just let my thoughts flow. And I'm, I'm so glad I did. But I I I, um, I wrote the book. Um, uh, I think a month after it, I picked the, I picked the title. Something told me to get the website, 59 Prime. I did all those things not knowing that it was going to evolve to, to this. And uh, it, it, came to, it came to fruition. And um, as I was working with the, the editor uh, at the end of uh, 2021, he was telling me, well, how much do you want to charge for this? And how much to make? I said, look, I said, I never thought I was going to write a book. I said, if I sell one book... I said that's more than I ever thought. I said so. I so I so I guess my my revenue target is twelve ninety nine, and that's why I charge for the book because he was he was saying. Well, I said, look, twelve ninety nine makes sense to me. I said, I don't. It's not the money; it's the message. I said uh, that's about. Um, I said if you think about it, I said that's about two pages for every year of my life. I said it's about ten cents a page. I said you can get a pizza for, you know, about the same as that. I said hopefully there's more in here and. I've always been a person who is is focused on quality over quantity, and uh, it's a small book. It's not a novel by any means, but uh, there's a lot of life in that book, and all those things, those chapters, those ten chapters collectively, 
help tell the story and also some of the the lessons I've learned there's no need to take that with me you know and and that's been the impetus of of 59 prime I have not um, I have a website that I put up because I wanted people to maybe look at it or understand kind of what was behind it before they 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 bought it I didn't want it to be just a sell and um, it's selling on Amazon too I I've only been on Amazon once. Uh, December third is when I went on because they told me I had to check and see if if the payment process was working. And so I have no idea what's going on on Amazon, and I don't really care. Um, it's not good to we're human, and it's not good to read your own press, good or bad. And so I wrote it hoping it would touch people's lives, and 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 that's that's that. So I, I don't know, but. I'm blessed. Yeah, I'll do the best I can to, to get the word out there. So for my audience out there, 59 Prime, um, you got a copy there, Michael, to hold up? I know we're not finished yet. We're still going to go through the book, but just midway. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I love it. I like the uh, yeah. I like the cover. Perfect. One thing I want to just ask you a question. So when you did go to hospital, did the doctor come out and said, Michael, you've got a detached retina in your left eye and you need emergency surgery? Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's absolutely. So that um, I, I just told you about the first day. So that that first um, stay was when I, when I talked about me having to use the bathroom in the basket in the track. So I was in a hospital four days. Then I got out and um, Janelle came back and that was the weekend. And I was supposed to get my Remicade on Monday. Well, I got it and it didn't help. And so they said, you need to go see an ophthalmologist your ophthalmologist. And I went to see him on a, on a Tuesday and he did the same, Michael, he did the same thing that my ophthalmologist did 13 years ago when he looked at my scans. I saw him push back from the desk and I saw that look on his face and then I saw him leave. And I said, okay, I've seen this before. This is not good. He came back and he said, um, Michael, how long have you been working? You've been driving? You've been reading, you've been doing stuff. How long have you been doing it like this? I said, like what? I said, I said about since the beginning of the year. And he said, um, I know you just got out of a hospital four days ago, but you've got a fully detached retina in your left eye. And I said, okay. I said, well, what do we need to do? He says, we, you need to have emergency surgery. And I said, okay, let's, let's do it. So, um, Seven days after getting out of the other hospital, I had surgery at a different hospital uh, to, to reattach my my uh, retina. I had three tears, one major and, and two minor. Uh, unfortunately, the one major was at the bottom. Uh, so it was the one that, that held my, it's supposed to keep your eyeball from rolling around. And, and he said, I don't know how you were driving. I don't know how you were doing everything, all this. And I said, you know, I didn't. Think about it. And I was also on the steroids, too. So I was uh, he says, you, you're on. He says, you've got over 4000 milligrams. I said, yeah, I said, I said, everybody's got something. I said, so what do we need to do? And so we did that. But that that was the first um, surgery of now. I've had uh, four that I've been under anesthesia for. Um, and then I have uh, three that were uh, laser in office. So uh, I am. Uh, my last one was in uh, in December, and I and I went in and um, had my um, uh, it had to go in and get cataracts now because of the surgery there and all the surgeries I had had over the over the course of the eight months I had cataracts in my left eye, and I went back to the to the doctor and after that and uh, he said 
your cataracts. We've got those. Now you just go see your, your normal ophthalmologist, the original one who, who backed away from the table. So I saw him and he said, man, they did a fantastic job on your eye, your retina and everything's that. And I said, well, you know, Dr. Young is fantastic. And he says, uh-oh, he says, uh, you now got detached on your right eye. <laughs> and so it was it was in December that they found out that I got it. And I said, you know what? This is uh, I said, well, what do we do about it? He says, we, we got to do laser surgery right now and I can and can zap these things. And I said, OK, let's do it. I you know, was with her parents here and I and I called her. I said, hey, honey, they, they said I got to tell somebody because it's a surgery and sign off. But here's what's going on. And uh, I think it's one hundred and ninety seven laser zaps later. They they did it and um, they, they completed it. And I, I sat in that office afterwards thinking I came in to to get fitted for my new prescription and wound up having surgery. But it all, you know, the the one thing that came out of there, Michael, is I leveraged what was in 59 Prime. All the things I'd been saying, I was thinking. I was actually, okay, yeah, it's not what happens to you, how you respond, and you got to be. And, and so that's when I really started really, really getting excited about 59 Prime going out to everybody. It helped me, and I, I believe it could help others. Reminds me of David Goggins when he talks about the cookie jar. I'm not sure if you know who David Goggins is, but uh, great motivational and inspiration to people around the world. But yeah, going back to your past and pulling out the hard things makes the present easier, is what he says. Yeah, and, and, and also, yeah. and also, I think the best time to, to talk about those things and your faith in that is when you're in the midst of them, because once they pass, they tend to dissipate a little bit. They don't take on quite the significance, but if you're in the middle of them, that's probably the best time. Yeah. And, 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 and I found that to be true. And the only easy day was yesterday, I guess, everything in the past. But I want to jump through Chapter 6, and, and you talk about hope and inspiration, and I want to talk about a couple of the, the great uh, quotes that you wrote in there as well that really sort of stood out for me. Uh, one was number six. You, you spoke about not all friends need or should be considered close friends. Develop barriers of entry, uh, preserve, protect, and manage your core confidence. The ones who are with you, always what does that mean to you it, it uh, you know it, it it means that um again it goes back to my my statement about quality over quantity um it doesn't mean that that it has to be a small group but the quality of that group it it, it needs to be firm and it needs to be tested and it needs to be people who are are with you because they're with you and and there's a reciprocal kind of relationship where that i uh, as I started writing 59 Prime, uh, one of the things I, I wanted to do was to take the opportunity to thank a lot of people who have played a role in my life. And and so there is a section in there. Uh, there's two sections in there. Uh, one is I, I, I call it my go to crew. The people um, they're they're men and women who have been there with me. I think there's there's 30 maybe maybe 30 <clears throat> that I haven't who've been there with me through some of these journeys and all that. And they're really my core. And then I have another, another section um, that's called um, professional colleagues now considered lifelong friends. And I wanted to take that opportunity um, from the, my 30 years of work, there's a lot of people. And I started jotting down names and names and names. And when I finally was finished, my, my editor, uh, Mel Cohen, as he was putting together, he said, I've never seen anything like this, Michael. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you have over 200 people 
that you got? I said, I didn't count. I said, but these are people. And I wanted to, to do that. So that, um, so again, it's not the, uh, it doesn't mean by, by, by quantity, it doesn't mean it have to be small, but that, that, that group needs to be tested. They're, they're people who, who you would seek out and people who understand and know and are in constant contact. Some of the people that I have on there, uh, I haven't seen or talked to in 15, 20 years, 30 years, not 30 years, but quite, quite a while. And so another beautiful gift to me from writing the book was now I have them reaching out to me because they didn't realize how important they were to me. And I wanted them to know that. And I wanted it in print and I wanted them to be acknowledged. And so it's reopened those doors. And so, again, for me, a blessing of being able to tell tell people um, how much they mean because sometimes you don't realize it. Yeah, that's beautiful. And a lot of times people write a book for a business card, but you've actually wrote your book for an what's the word not in the envelope but for an olive branch for people back in the past to say hey this is my story this is what i've been up to as well and it's a sort of a good catch-up on your life for where you are now at 59 prime another great uh, inspirational quote i got from the book and i love this one i absolutely do i'm going to turn it into a poster it is never dim your light because it's too bright for some if they choose to remain in your life then kindly recommend that they need to wear sunglasses <laughs> it's it's true i mean think about it and uh and you may they you know and, and you you um if they want to stay then they they need to know that you are you and you're not going to change and if that's going to bother them you know they, they basically need to try to adapt it and so it was really a, a nice way yeah the shades were really powerful way to say hey it, it, you know i'm going to shine my light and so if it's too bright for you you know, it's, it's you may need to figure out some other way. Wear some shades. Yeah. If you want to stay, wear the shades. That's it's it's fantastic because we all have a certain light in ourselves and we're all on a different life path or light path. And sometimes we, we dim our own light for the convenience of other people. But really what we need to do is get to that next level of brightness because we know that there are other people that we... I've got a great quote I use in my coaching program, which is you don't know who's going to be on your chessboard in the next 12 to 24 months if you go to that next... If you make that next move. So it's it's all about continuing to shine your light and speaking your own truth as well. But I'll, um, I won't go any further than that. And another one, last quote I got from chapter six, which was uh, a special one to me, which was aspire to change the world by just being you even if you fall short you'll have nothing left on the playing field i'm aware of someone who achieved worldwide eminence in approximately 33 short years who is that person for those playing at home that that person is is jesus and and what he went through uh and it is uh i am spiritual person i'm i'm not somebody who's going to get up behind a pulpit because that's just not how i communicate but i I understand and believe that there is a force. Uh, I've had so many um, just just aha moments and things that have come, reflections that have come to me and helped me throughout this process to reinforce what I already knew. There were times when um, I went out on, uh, uh, when I had to take off work, I was working for myself and just starting. So I didn't have much money. And so things always seemed to fall in place for me. And... I there was one time I had forty seven dollars 
in my account. I didn't tell Janelle. I had $47 and we had a mortgage payment coming up. And I was, you know, it, I was I was bad. I was beyond the point of wait to worry. I was worrying. And I just kept being, okay, let's figure out what you can do. I, I woke up the, um, two days before that payment was due and saw there was a deposit in my account. And, and, and it was, it was almost $5,000. And I was thinking, what, what is this? How is this? Come to find out there was an error I made last year on my taxes and the internal revenue service caught it and reversed it and sent me a refund. So people say, well, that was luck. That's not luck. That's, you know, I, I had so many of those kinds of moments that just helped me through it. It was writing this book. Everything was clear for me to do it. And I knew it wasn't me. I mean, I, I was able to, to move in with my mom and dad for um, a while. And I, I, I actually set up my office in, in their home, away from home. I unplugged from social media and just had such clarity of thought. But I, I knew it wasn't me. I mean, I knew that these thoughts, this piece, my approach now, it, it, it all, it, it was all, all pre-planned, just waiting for me to catch up to it. And so I, I really feel strongly about, about sharing that. I even have my website. There is, um, I'm, I'm not somebody who's been a, a vocal kind of, I like to get up and do presentations, but, but I have, and I, and I do them now on a regular basis. Um, but for something like this, that has a message. I'm, I'm, I'm all in. And for that, I've, been fortunate to, as soon as I was able to recover and get back to a point where I could relaunch Beam, I did so on LinkedIn uh, end of September. I just said, "Hey, I'm 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 coming back." Within two weeks, I had four clients, all referrals. Two were in the two were in the biotech industry, which is the industry I wanted to be in. One was with a nonprofit, and one was with another one who who makes air purifiers. All industry that I wanted to be in, all referrals. That's not. So I, I, I you know, if 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 um, if I'm an example of what it, it's 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 bigger than us. And there's there's um, it's about faith, and and um, I'm just trying to be a messenger of that. Yeah, they say that coincidence is God's way of staying anonymous, and I think we all know that true. <laughs> because those things that happen to us internally, it's very hard to express, but you know the truth of, of the matter in the story. Uh, so thank you for sharing that as well. And yeah, for people listening, again, this book is uh, might be short, but God damn, it's deep. And it's not the length of a book, it's, it's the depth of the book, and, and this certainly goes deep as well. Um, I want to jump into the next chapter, which you make a lot of uh, career and life lessons. And one again, some of the things that stood out for me was, uh, number three, you cannot outsource your legacy. So get busy creating that. What does legacy mean for you? Legacy means the impact that you have, not just from a personal, I mean, not from a professional standpoint, but from, from a personal. What do you, what do you want? Uh, and, and do you want people to remember you? I think that's a question that also needs to be asked because uh, there were, there's some people who, who will say, I'm just here and I'm gone. And um, I think that each of us is a gift. I mean, our life is a gift. And we get to choose what do you want to do with it? And, and um, do you want to try to use it to amplify something um, yourself or what? And, and for me, it is 
leaving something positive here for for somebody to 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 let know I was here and, and had an impact and, and actually could change and it and um, it may not even be immediate. It it could be you know two um, you know two generations from now. Uh, I wrote. Um, uh, I've been blogging uh, ever since because it, it hasn't stopped. And so uh, on my webpage, there's a there's a drop down called Michael's Musings, and I um, aside from the the my thoughts that you have in there, the seven. Uh, since then, I've written another sixteen. Then and they're on on the page in there, and one of them is called um, Twenty Two Thirty. And I titled that because I say that's 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 the year by my best guess that we will be able to say that racism no longer exists in the year 2230. And I talk about um, I hope that um, that my great great grandniece will be able to look at that point in time and open up 59 Prime and and look up to the heavens at me. And I hope my spirit is alive to to acknowledge that we've turned a corner on racism by 2023. And there's other ones in there like that. But uh, I think it's about that. And, and uh, not everybody's there. But I believe that, um, you know, you can you can change people's lives. And, and, and it's not just been me. It's been it's been my family, too. I mean, every single my brothers, all of us have the same approach and we've. We've, we've tried to, to be open. We tried to be giving. We tried to be encouraging. We tried to be loving and show people what we've experienced. Um, some of them haven't. So I think we have an obligation to show this. It, it is. You can. And here's what it can do. And so that's that's kind of what I mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. And a couple last questions before we sort of wrap up as well. Another great lesson that you put in the book, and this one is definitely a poster. I can definitely see this as a poster. Sometimes we have to fall off the train only to realize we've been traveling on the wrong set of tracks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I think we all can do that. And I, you know, I've done that in, um, you know, personally and professionally. Sometimes you, you know, and you can get latched on to things, and um, you know. My uh, my experience and when I just made the hard stop of of um, you know, changing careers from working for a corporation to working with them now, that was when I realized, OK, wait a minute, this is it's not me. I'm not broken. I'm not delivering. I'm not that. It's just I'm now in the wrong. It, it's a different point in time. Um, before that, I I actually I was working for advanced micro devices and and I. I you know, coming back to Texas, and and I realized this this is you know, this is maybe not what I want to do. I don't, but um, I, I I took action. And I said, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to do this. And I worked with them, and I had a package, and I, I stepped away, and that was on a Friday, and I was walking out. I turned my badge in. I was walking out here in Austin. Was going to get in the car and drive down to see my parents. And, and figure out, okay, Michael, so you just quit your job, what are you gonna do? Well, I went to my car and I grabbed the car door and the phone rang in the parking garage. And it was a colleague of mine who I knew at, at Amgen who was now working for a company called AECOM. And she called me and she said, Michael, I know you got a job. I know you're not looking for a job, but I'm, I'm working for this fantastic company and they are looking for an executive chief of staff. And I, and I told him, I said, I got the perfect person, but he's got a job. And I told her, I said, Sharon, just five minutes ago, I turned my badge in. And I went on 
and accepted that job. So it's wow. They're, 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 these are not, like I said, they're 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 not accidents. And like you said, we're just they're just waiting for us to catch up to them. And, and um, when you acknowledge them and talk about them, I mean you, that that makes it real to people, and it and also reaffirms it to yourself. So that's why I tell these stories because they're true and they happen to me, and. I can share it with you and explain it to you, but I can't make you believe or understand it. And, and that's really not my job, but I'm going to I'm going to tell you this because I, I want you to know that. And so I have an obligation to. To tell the truth, my truth, and I don't have obligation on how to manage it, how you receive it. Yeah, awesome. Now, I want you to get the book and I want you, Michael, to go to chapter nine where it says, My Hope. Talk to me about the last page. You, you say, My Hope. Can you do a, a quick little reading of Life is Circular from there where you talk about your hope? Or if you know it off by heart, tell us, what is your hope? My, my hope for, and, I'm, I, and I, and I want to go here because I want to read it. Which, so which page are you on? So, um, uh, oh, there it is, 121. So yeah. Life is Circular. Oh yeah. Okay. And I'll read it, and then, and then maybe I'll Please, just try be good. to see if yeah, I can. Just to finish off. Okay. Life is circular. The ancient Chinese philosophy of yin and yang has merit. Life is incredibly non-dualistic, meaning that there is something in everything. There's good. In the good, there in the good there is bad, and in the bad there is good. In the end, everything in life has balance. Find yours and relish it. Um. You know that's that's a deep one that 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 came to me as as I was you know, as I was getting in the final stages of that that you know it, it's it's it it aligns with several other kinds of uh, philosophies out there that um, you know that things come back to you and and it, and it may not come back to you when you want it and how you want it but you got to put positive things out there in the universe. And, and 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 do that. I think we all have an obligation to, to share our, our experiences experiences. Not not just the positive ones, but also the negative ones. So fifty nine prime wasn't meant to be. Um, uh, if you read it, it's not all inspirational in terms of you know uplifting. There's a, there's a there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of uh, emotion. There's a lot of struggles uh, in there. But but all of those things define who you are. And I think you you have to go through through those things. Uh, I, I um, one of the musings I wrote is 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 titled something because everybody's got one, and uh, we should share those and and be cognizant that no matter how bad things are, there there is always somebody who's dealing with something worse always, and so keep things in perspective and and uh, um, try to shine your light and and and. and um, for others, because you just you never you never know. You might be that last rope, lifeline, or word of encouragement for somebody who is going through something really really bad, and you might be the last person they talk to uh, before they make a decision to do something. And so, if you keep that train of thought and and try to minimize uh, self pity, I mean, we go through all go through stuff. If you can minimize that. Man, I tell you what, you just seem to glow. And I've had people tell me I've always been uplifting and, and kind of uh, um, people kind of gravitate toward me because of that. But but even more so now, after after 2020, 21, what I went through when I came out on the other side, all those 
all those little dots were connected for me. And I, and I realized that um, there's so much more to life. And, and a lot of it is, is um, work, working and meeting people like you. I would not have ever met you had I written 59 Prime. Or the other question is, I would have never found you if you never wrote 59 Prime as around the world's largest free book summary website. But I think Gandhi said it correct. He said, your life is your message. And your life, Michael, is this message in this book. And I want to leave the audience with, go out and buy this book. Uh, where can people reach you, find you? So you're on LinkedIn, Michael. You've got your um, food and barbecue thing on Facebook. But if people want to get a copy of this book, where, what's the best place you would direct them to? Uh, you know, I can. Uh, you can go um, to, to www.59prime.com. So that is, that is the official website. And, and from there, you can, you can uh, learn more about the book learn more about me. Um, you can follow me on, on Michael's Musings, which is one of the, the, basically a blog I do that's as inspirational and, and just my thoughts on life. Um, you can purchase the book there. Uh, one thing that I, I have been, been able to do and have been blessed to do is that those coming through the, that buy it there, um, you know, I manage the ones that, that are purchased there that I wanted to come to me. Um, and so I have been, doing fulfillment and but I have been blessed to be able to write in every single one of them I I know that uh, I've sold over over 250 probably close to 300 that have come through there and I've signed every one of those and that to me is special especially when it comes from friends and and and, and colleagues I'm able to write a special note in those so but we go to the, go to www.59 prime and and um, and read about read about the book and and if you um, like what you're reading and, and it resonates with you which I hope it does then then feel free to buy it and uh, and uh, hopefully at some point in time uh, I'll be able to sign it for you Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you again, Michael, for putting the book out there. And yeah, one of the, I've read a lot of books in my time, as you know, and it's probably one of the best books I've read on a, on a memoir, but just going back to your roots and, and showing the foundations of how your life grew like a, a tree it is and, and the fruit that you are sort of letting us all eat at the moment is from your struggles and the 59 years of growing your life to the point where you're sharing your message. So thank you very much for that. And congratulations. This is the longest podcast I've ever done at an hour and 30 minutes. Minutes. So I think it's a good time to wrap through there anymore and people know the full story. So go out there, follow Michael uh, on social, check out 59prime.com, buy the book. And Michael, yeah, thank you for being such an inspirational guest and um, all the thank great Thank you so much, done. Michael, for reaching out to me. I really appreciate it. And you've made this a, a very enjoyable experience. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look you up when I come to Australia. And if you're ever in Austin, you, you, you know how to find me. I'll be there. I'll be, knocking on, I'll be knocking on the door. Don't worry about that. Well, Michael, have a great right. day and uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Stay blessed. Remain blessed. No worries. All right.